And now I will read the scripture that Jason's going to preach on, and it's from Exodus 16, verses 1 through 3 and 9 through 12. Um, And you can follow along on the website. Um, So it says, they set out from El Elim, is it Elim? (laughs) And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. All right, there was a loud buzzing sound that was coming through these windows a second ago from, I think, low-hanging wires outside uh, over by the parking lot. Josh is calling EPB. Don't touch the fence over there by the parking lot. I don't know. I think it's fine. I don't mean to sound too dramatic, but there's loud buzzing coming from that thing. So, Josh, did you fix it? Huh? Oh, hey! Okay, great. He's good. Um, That's going to be super weird on the podcast. Okay. Uh, it's like it's not weird in the room. Um, I, I, Ava, thanks for sharing. I am um, grateful uh, to get to preach out of this passage in light of that. Um, the all semester we have been talking about home, um, this is kind of mysterious place we've never been, in a sense, but have such an incredible longing for. And what does God tell us through the scriptures about homesickness, about our desires for home, about what home is and what it's like? And tonight, we're specifically going to be talking about nostalgia and how our desire to go back not only keeps us from moving forward, but robs us of life today. Okay, let's pray. Father, in your um, goodness and, and through your mercy... We ask that you would help us tonight that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, a rock and a redeemer. And would you, through your word today and through the daily bread you give us in your scriptures and at the communion meal and in, in each other through your spirit, would you give us what we need to be present with you in the midst of whatever wildernesses we're in? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So friends, the Israelite people uh, were enslaved for 400 years. It's a long time. You read that stuff in ancient texts and maybe you can whiz over that, but that is a long time, 400 years. And they grew so numerous as slaves that the Pharaoh, the leader of, of Egypt at the time, commanded them to build these cities called Ramses and Pithom. These are two cities just simply built by slaves to house slave populations. And still they grew in number. And so the Pharaoh instituted stricter laws to oppress them even more. And the more he oppressed them, the more they grew. 
Until finally the Pharaoh commanded that all newborn Israelite sons be put to death in order to stop the Israelites from growing. And the people of Israel cried out to God and God heard their cries and he knew their suffering. And he sent Moses and Aaron, two Israelites, two of their own people, to free his people from slavery and bring them into the land that God had promised their forefather, Abraham. Are you with me in the narrative of the story? Okay, super, this, is what, this is arguably the most important story in the scriptures, especially if you understand that Jesus is, is uh, embarking on the, uh, and the actual exodus, and this is a type of that exodus as well. Anyway, you can listen to our podcast. We have a whole sermon on that at one point. But through the mighty works and miracles that they embarked on, um, on le- on, they embarked on leaving on this journey to the promised land. There's crazy stories of plagues and miracles and the parting of a sea. And, and, and they, they set out for the promised land through this wilderness. And our text picks this up. Let's just read that first section again. They set out from Elam. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elam and Sinai and on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Just one month after leaving slavery, the Israelites remembered it fondly. Just one month after leaving slavery, they remembered it fondly. The very context that they cried out to be freed from, they wanted back. They remembered when their stomachs were full, when they had fires and bread Yes, they were enslaved, and yes, our firstborn children are being killed, but at least our bellies were full. Yes, it's only one month from being enslaved, but remember, they're in the wilderness now. Egypt was terrible, but it was all they knew. Now they're wandering in the wilderness of the unknown. Maybe, maybe they're not so different from us. How many things in our lives are terrible, but they're all we know? They're not good, but one month into the wilderness, we remember them fondly. How long do you endure anything like a wilderness before you complain? A month? One of our staff members today said, maybe two days? You're probably more mature than most of our staff, but... They had been freed from slavery and were on their way to the promised land, but they weren't there yet. They weren't there yet. How long would you march through the wilderness with hundreds of thousands of people, without any of the trappings you used to have, without any of the norms that used to be present in your life, before you longed for your old life? Many of us experience something like this with our own patterns of returning to destructive relationships or behaviors. We go back to exes or continue to spend time in groups of friends who are very destructive for us. Even when we recognize those patterns of life or those particular communities that we exist in are not life-giving, even when we recognize that it's not good if it's all we've ever known, can we last for more than a month in the wilderness of the unknown? And so one month in, they grumble. They remember what they used to have. 
And all of a sudden, they long to be somewhere other than where they are now. To be somewhere else. Somewhere idealized in their past. This is nostalgia. And nostalgia comes to us from the Greek language and literally means the pain of trying to return. That's what nostalgia, that's that's called etymology. It's the study of words. Uh, or, Or actually, the etymology of the word etymology is the study of knowledge. If you want to know things, study words. That's the Greek thoughts. Greeks thought. Um, it means returning pain, right? The pain of returning. I can't get back. I'm trying to get back, but it's a slog and it's hard. And even when I get there, it's not like it used to be. This pain and suffering that we experience, that humans have been experiencing from their own versions of nostalgia in their cultures. Well, the Greeks had a word for that. It comes to us through Latin. German came in along the way and influenced it as well. Now we think of it positively. We'll get into some of that. But it's baked with a negative connotation. It's pain in returning. As a matter of fact, in the late 1700s and 1800s, nostalgia was a medical condition. It was a kind of mania. All right, let me, I want you guys to listen to this description out of a journal of science uh, in the late 1800s uh, defining nostalgia. Okay, this is how it was defined in the late 1800s in a journal of science in America. Okay, nostalgia may be characterized in four ways. Sadness, sleeplessness, loss of appetite, and weakness. The nostalgic loses his gaiety, his energy, and sits in isolation in order to give himself up to the one idea that pursues him, that is, his country. He embellishes the memories attached to places where he was brought up. And he creates an ideal world where his imagination revels with an obstinate persistence. That's a technical definition of nostalgia in the late 1800s in the United States. Now, in our contemporary moment, we don't generally consider it to be an ailment or a medical condition. I don't don't think it's diagnosable as a condition of any kind. I don't think so. I'm not sure about that, but I don't think so. We we tend to think of it in the way we use it, like a warm memory, maybe. Like when you hear the word nostalgia outside of when Jason comes up and has a giant wet blanket over the whole room with it, uh, you probably think of it like, that's a warm memory. It's like a nice thing to be nostalgic for a minute. We listen to music in order to conjure up those sentiments and those kinds of things, right? But another word for nostalgia, a synonym for it in our context, is probably homesickness, in a way. And that word in English, it's so interesting to me, even has the word sick in it. We're sick because we don't feel at home in our present circumstances. And we would rather be somewhere that we used to be, you see? I feel sick because I'm where I'm at right now physically, relationally, and in whatever embodied state that I'm in and whatever relationships and contexts I'm in, I don't feel at home right now and I'd rather be where I used to be and it makes me feel sick. Even if it wasn't all that great, we feel sick and tired of the wildernesses that we are in and so we embellish our memories and we create idealized versions of the past and then we prefer them or we prefer at least to imagine them over being present in our circumstances. You see? In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10, we are told that asking, why were the former days better than these? We're told that asking that question isn't wise. Isn't that interesting? That asking the question, why did it used to be better than it is now in this area of my life? 
the author of Ecclesiastes says it's not a wise question to ask. Thinking that what we used to have is better than what we have now and asking why we can't have it again, that's not wise. Wishing that we could be back to where we used to be rather than to be where we are today isn't wise. And now, here's where I want to be most careful tonight. Because the most frequent command in the Bible is to remember. Like if you just look at sheer numbers, some form of remember is the most frequent command in the Bible in its various forms. We are a forgetful people and it is imperative that we remember there's something about putting the pieces together in our history and recalling them and then giving thanks for them which is of paramount importance in our life. It is good to share old stories. It is life-giving to remember good times and to give thanks for them. And to rise and move forward, invigorated by how far we've come and what we've experienced together. You will not go far without that practice. But to compare, to prefer what we used to have and to want to go back to it rather than to be present and press on, to lift up some idealized and embellished history and to compare it with the present circumstances and that rather than to look at what we used to have and give thanks and move on, but to look at that and go, I wish I was back. That's not wise. And the book of Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. It's not a bunch of moral laws. This isn't a conversation tonight about whether something is bad or good. It's a conversation about what's wise. Now, maybe you've never distinguished those things before. It will be so, so helpful for you to develop some of that distinction in your head. This is not a moral law that if you ask it, you're sinning. Ecclesiastes is a collection of wisdom from a father to a son that's been incorporated into the Israelite literature, included in the Christian canon, and Christians for the past 2,000 years have understood that we can discern and come under some of God's authority in this letter. It's wisdom from a father to a son, and he's saying, son, asking why were the old days better than the new days, that's not wise. In other words, this isn't a conversation about guilt or anything like that. It's a conversation about wisdom. Do you understand what I'm saying? I guess if you don't, come talk to me afterwards, okay? Uh, The book of Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. It isn't wise to ask this question and to compare embellished and idealized histories with the present because nostalgia pulls us out of the present and it robs us of our hope. Nostalgia pulls us out of the present and it robs us of our hope. It is fine and good for me to sit around with my old friends and tell stories about 20 years ago that make us laugh. It's amazing. If you guys do that, you wouldn't be born probably, but uh, I've got some tires. I got some miles on the tires, okay? Uh, But when we begin to spend time, my friends and I, and energy wishing we could kind of go back, you know, We enter into foolish territory. Again, it's not that it's wrong, it's just not wise. The first thing nostalgia is gonna do is it's gonna reconstruct narratives to justify that the past is preferable to the present. Let me say that again. The first thing nostalgia is gonna do is reconstruct narratives to justify that the past is preferable to the present. 
I see this a ton in old romances. This happens with small things. This happens with big things. Let's talk about small things. A few years ago, my friend Ben and I were talking about our love for 80s movies. We grew up in the 80s, started sharing these movies uh, with each other and, and we, we, that, that we kind of had on repeat, like the ones we watched most as a kid. And while we were talking, uh, we were trying to discern like which of these movies hold up. Like, which ones of these movies that we loved as kids were still good today? Well, we actually disagreed on some of them, and so naturally I made an Excel sheet. Um, and and I, I put a screenshot of the first few columns of that in your thing so you can see what I'm talking about, okay? Um, so we ended up listing 183 movies from 1980 to 1999, which, between the two of us, we probably watched more than any other movies growing up. And here's how it works if you look at that little spreadsheet on the page. If you're not on the page, the QR codes. Um, also, that's where like song lyrics are and everything. So if you're wondering how everybody knows things in here, it's the website. So there you go. Um, here's how it works. First on that spreadsheet, first they're sorted chronologically from 1980 down to 1999. And then you've got the movie title and then how much it was rewatched in sort of a star rating. There's a legend off to the side. Okay. Um, and then finally, upon rewatch, you can't rate it until you watch it again after the conversation. How does it hold up now? Okay, does it make sense? It's just a way for us to understand. And some of the movies hold up extremely well, like The Goonies, y'all, The Goonies, okay? Or, or um, uh, Back to the Future. Oh my gosh, that movie is, okay, we gotta talk. But, um, Big Trouble in Little China. If you guys haven't seen Big Trouble in Little China, it's one of America's greatest treasures, okay? Um, but, but there are tons of movies that upon rewatching them are super cringy. Like, that it, and it's shocking because, like, in my mind, they're incredible. Like, in my mind, I remember going, oh, my gosh, that movie was, like, earth-shatteringly good. And then I watch it again, and I'm like, oh, I hope Ben didn't watch that one. Like, I'm going to try to convince him not to watch that by ranking it really low, you know, kind of thing, right? And, and, um, and I, I, I know that I've got a lot more time than y'all to look back on, okay? But have you, even at your age now, have you revisited something that you like when, say, you were, like, in sixth grade? And you're, I think you, you, maybe it's like a, a book or, or a song or a movie or some clothing or an activity and you go back and revisit it now and you're kind of like, ugh, like, why did, I, why did I like that so much? Has that happened to you guys yet? Have you experienced that? You know, it's a little, maybe, I don't know, cringy might be like a thing for me. I don't know, maybe not for you, but, but this is what nostalgia kind of does for us. It idealizes our past. That's just like a silly thing with the movies. But like, it doesn't just do that with silly things. The Israelites were enslaved for 400 years and they just experienced the mass genocide of their infants. But now in the wilderness, just one month later, they push down the negative stories and they remember, gosh, but wasn't it nice to have our bellies full? A lot of us, like the Israelites, we do this with things that we know were not good for us. But when we are struggling in the present moment, when we're going through our wilderness seasons, whatever they are, we, can, we are so good at justifying things in our past and reworking our memories and constructing interesting narratives to make it sound like it wasn't that bad. Like the Israelites who were being fed so that they could be productive slaves found themselves saying, well, at least our bellies were full. A couple years ago, the Reed House Hotel, the Sheraton Reed House down here, it's this kind of old historic hotel with like a haunted room that's on a bunch of like special TV shows or whatever. Um, they were going through this big renovation process and 
on their chain link fence wrapped around the building during this like year or two re- renovation. They had a big sign that said, bring back the roaring 20s. This is a statement of nostalgia. And I know what they mean. You probably know what they mean. None of us in this room have lived through the 20s. Sorry, we have lived through these 20s. We haven't lived through those 20s. Hopefully we'll all make it out of these 20s, okay? Um, but, but I know what they mean. They meant like galas. And do you say galas or galas? Oh, I am wrong, friends. Wow, okay. They meant galas and celebrations and live music and good food. They meant opulence. That's probably what they meant, right? They don't mean, you know, back when women couldn't vote and own credit cards. They don't mean we really want to, like, undo every single effort that's been made in the civil rights movement. They don't mean that. You know they don't. But nobody who put up that sign was doing the math. Nobody was sitting there looking at actually what it was like to live in the 20s for the average American and going, that actually is better. They've embellished it and they've idealized it and they've preferred it to the present. Nostalgia does this kind of thing to us. It warps our perception of history and it it doesn't imagine a big enough world Because back in the Roaring Twenties, people were looking back then too. You may miss that one season when like right now you think everything was great. One summer, that camp, whatever it is. But if you were to go back there, you would realize that even there, home was elusive. Nostalgia doesn't imagine a big enough world. Instead, it creates an escape for this world and it trades it for an idealized one that wasn't even okay back then. To put it more simply, nostalgia means we don't feel at home where we are and we want to feel at home somewhere else. We want to be somewhere else, just not here. That's what nostalgia does. Which reveals to me the real folly of nostalgia, which is the opposite of wisdom. Foolishness and wisdom are antonyms. In our desire to go back, it not only keeps us from going forward, but it robs us of today. It steals the present. That's what nostalgia does. And what's tragic isn't that it steals the present, it's that it leaves us in despair. Friends, I, am, I, want, to, I want you to hear this tonight, not because primarily I want you not to be foolish. It's I don't want you to be left with despair. That's what I don't want. Because in our nostalgia, we literally can't go back and we've given up on the present and then lose hope for the future, which leaves us with despair. When the Israelites complained to Moses and Aaron, I want you to look at what they wished for in the second half of our text or at the very end of that first section. Then we'll look at the second half in a second. They didn't even wish that their bellies were full. That's what they remembered. That's what they remembered. That's what they got nostalgic about. But because they know that they can't really go back, what they wish for is that God would have just killed them. Look at the text. I'm actually asking you to look at your phones during a sermon. There you go, okay? We would have rather died back then than to die in hunger in the wilderness here. Their nostalgia in the end leaves them in despair. This is why nostalgia isn't wise because it steals us from the present and leaves us with despair. 
But our text doesn't end there. So I want us to look at the, the last section here as we end, okay? God tells Moses what he's gonna do because of this. And then Moses relays this to Aaron. He says, then Moses says to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, the ones who are grumbling with their grumbling, a couple verses earlier says, come near before the Lord for he's heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread and then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. All throughout the Bible, there are these warnings and commands for the people of God to stop complaining. You mentioned that to stop grumbling, to trust and to have hope and to be thankful. And so maybe it will come as a surprise to you that God not only hears the grumbling of the very people that he asks not to grumble, but he gives them the desire of their hearts. He not only hears, but he provides. That's when they began, began to know who he was, when he provided for them in response to their grumbling. And if you go further in the story, you discover that he not only provides, but he knows. He too left the comfort of what was familiar to him and has spent time in the wilderness. He knows what it's like to thirst and to hunger, to be tempted to use whatever means are at his disposal to make things like they used to be for him. But instead of looking back, Jesus fixed his eyes and his attention on, on what he came to do and who he came to do it for. God not only provides for people who say, I wish you would have just killed me. He also personally knows what it's like to be in a wilderness. You and I, friend, know a God who is not only able to provide for us in our wilderness, but he's able to sympathize with us in our wilderness. I don't know what kind of wilderness you're going through, but the answer isn't in your past. Home isn't in the past. Again, the number one command in the Bible is to remember. We ought to be looking at our past, learning from our past, giving thanks for things that have been brought, we've been brought through in our past for sure. But home isn't back. The way forward isn't back. Learn, give thanks, but don't live there. If you could actually go back, you can't. But hypothetically, if you could, what you would see is that you didn't even have then what you really want now. And even if you did, now hypotheticals on hypotheticals, the rest of the world didn't yet. And often, we'll get to this in the coming weeks as we talk about it, but so often what we long for is, is not even close to the scope of what God has in mind. Because even if I could set up my arena of comfort in this world, how satisfied will I actually be when I have news stories of what's going on all around me and in the rest of the world? Our vision is not big enough yet. We ought to be praying for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done, for death to be no more. And so we, with our eyes fixed on the promises of Jesus, a kingdom which cannot be shaken, a world with no more sorrow and no more death, a world where each and all are known and loved, our eyes are fixed on that, and we press on, not shrinking back when we're in the wilderness, 
but crying out to God who is able to provide what we lack while he leads us home. And so whatever wilderness you're going through, cry out to the one who listens and look for how he's providing for you. And I think that would be a nice way and a little tidy way to sort of end the sermon. But I think it's super important for we Christians to remember that God sets his church in the world to be little Christs. To be his ambassadors of reconciliation. You and I should know. And if you're not a Christian, listen in. This is what, it's called, this is what you're being called to if you say yes to Jesus. But you Christians, you and I should know that God is equipping us. This is why he's equipping you. Your knowledge, your gifts, your personality tests and things you learn about your capabilities, the desires and passions of your heart. Why is God doing all this? Not for your identity. That's already been secured in Jesus, friends. You don't, need to, you don't need to get your grades and figure out who you are. I'm off script, so pray for us, okay? Like, you don't need to get your grades and, and, and figure out your personality type and have somebody tell you what you're good at in order for you to find out who you are. God will reveal that in his time and it is stunningly beautiful. You're gonna shine like stars. The reason why God is equipping you and empowering you and giving you gifts and all this kind of thing is so that you can provide for others who are crying out. So even as you cry out in your wilderness, consider how, how because of the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, God might be calling you to come alongside others and theirs. Friends, to start our time of prayer, let's just take a minute of silence. And think about, just take this time uh, to, cr- to call out to God. Ask him to provide for you in whatever your wilderness is. And if you can't identify that right now, then maybe ask the Lord how he might be equipping you to meet somebody else's needs in their wilderness, okay? Let's take a minute to think about that. We'll pray and we'll come to the Lord's table.